Well, again, thank you for making the commute over from St. Louis and for dinner last night. It was a delightful conversation, time together, and then for giving us of your time today and tomorrow. Um, you became a Presbyterian at the age of 38. Give us a sense as to that digression. <laughs> give, give us a sense as to that. This sounds like the prolegomena to persecution. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I, joking about that. But, but what I want to zero in on just is your Southern Baptist roots mm-hmm. and um, what you said about your mother and, and your father and just your your early decades of life, your formation taking place in a Southern Baptist and, and Baptistic context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my father grew up near Springfield, Missouri, and uh, was baptized at age 13. But it's the kind of a setting where lots of people get baptized, and that's the end of their Christian experience. And and that would be my father. And and he and my mother divorced when I was 18. But she was from Canada, and she had some kind of a religious experience as a high schooler. And after she started to have kids, of course, you have kids, what do you want to do? Get them in church. So she took him to a Southern Baptist church, hoping my father would ever come to church, which, which he never did. But I was taken to a Southern Baptist church. And the good thing was, when I was nine years old, kind of in the, the lion's den of the Southern Baptist church back then, was the nine through 12-year-olds. It's called the junior department. You know, and that's where they sent teachers to die because, you know, <laughs> what do you do with nine through 12 year olds? And they sent the evangelist into the lion's den. His name was Archie Lyle. And uh, he presented the gospel. Mm. And to this day, I never felt as sinful. Mm. I mean, I knew I was a sinner and he laid it out and he said, Christ died on the cross for your sins and you owe him your faith and your life. And I made a decision. Well, it wasn't a Christian family. It was not easy to follow through on that decision. My mother really resisted my getting baptized. I, you know, nagged her, nagged her, nagged her. My father had no interest in it, but I did get baptized. And then, you know, you, you have your, uh, your usual teen years, except my father told me when I started junior high that I was on my own. I had room and board, but that was it. So I, I needed a job. And I did, you know, landscaping and odd jobs and shoveled snow and stuff. But when I Started my sophomore year that our church, which was Fellowship Baptist Church in High Ridge, Missouri, we lost our janitorial help. And it was summer, so they hired me to be the janitor. And so I was the janitor of the church from until I graduated from high school. I hired a buddy to take the the uh, educational wing because once summer is over, I couldn't do the whole it's a pretty big church. So there I saw the inner workings of the church. And inner workings of churches are not always pretty and not always things that teenagers who have keys, who were in the, you know, I was in, a lot of times I'd be there all night, like on Friday night and Saturday night, because I was in school all week. So I'd be buffing floors and stuff all hours. But we lost a pastor or two in that time. And I saw a lot of things and became very disenchanted with the church. And then it wasn't until I was a young adult at a Southern Baptist church in Missoula, Montana. I was married at 19. My wife was Roman Catholic. We moved to Montana and a pastor, Bill Phillips, who became the head of the Washington, Oregon Baptist Association, he led her to the Lord after church one Sunday. So that began our pilgrimage as young marrieds. And again, that was in a Southern Baptist context. And I was ordained as a deacon and later was ordained as a pastor. So I got the pedigree. <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that, for that heritage. That's a sweet reflection. Give us a sense to your, your call to ministry and in particular, your, your call to a life of academia. Yeah, the life of of academia is a total mystery and accident because I always hated school. And uh, 
I always said I could never survive at a desk job. You know, don't say things like that in God's hearing, okay? <laughs> um, but my wife knew what she wanted to do. We went out, went out to Montana, and, and we were both in university. And, and I had declared forestry and quit university, and I declared journalism, and I quit university. Somebody needed to, you know, make a living. My wife went to nursing school, and I was a logger. And I was very happy logging, but, you know, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, you know, you're, you're looking for direction in life. And I was really under conviction. I liked logging, but I just felt something wasn't right. At the same time, we were planning our future. She was going to be a public health nurse. We knew where we were going to live. We looked at places up in Sanders County up by the Canadian border, Northern Rock. It sounds pretty idyllic. Still sounds idyllic. But on July 20th, 1975, I don't remember what was preached at church, but I, you know, I, I was driving the church bus. I was teaching the youth. I was doing whatever they asked me to do at church. I don't think I'd been ordained as a deacon yet, but I was headed in that direction. And I came home from church and I was just sitting at the table, probably reading my Bible. And I just felt this, you know, perceptible question from God, will you devote your life to spreading the gospel? Hmm. And I had, I had this, this sinking feeling like, oh, no. <laughs> But what are you going to say? What are you going to say to God? So in my mind, I said yes. And then my wife was fixing lunch in the kitchen. And I said, she's going to hit the roof. So within the next hour or so, I finally got the courage to say, uh, uh, dear, um, uh, you know, and, and I kind of stammered out what I felt I had just agreed to. Hmm. And I, you know, I didn't get a warm and fuzzy reception. So it was a long afternoon. Back then, you know, Southern Baptists were Christians. They had Sunday night church. And uh, <laughs> we went to Sunday night church. And of course, you have a service. And at the end of the service, you have an invitation. And if God has really spoken to you, what do you do at the invitation? You, you go forward and you share with the congregation, you know, what, what you're going to do. Or what you felt God told you to do. And, and actually now I must have been a deacon because I had to sit with the deacons that night. Because It must have been a communion evening. But I remember, you know, this is not going to be pleasant. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to share this. And I don't know what it means for you know, my relationship with my wife. Mm. And so, you know, the hymn started and I was kind of like, I don't know if I can do this or not. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to. And I started up the aisle and my wife was already, already in the front. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, that was my, my call. To, and I, you know, I never wanted to be in what you called academia. I never thought I was. Even when I got my PhD, I thought I was going to be a church planter in Iceland with Greater Europe Mission. So every two or three years, our sense of calling would change. I'd say, okay, that's what God's calling us to. And then that would mean, well, go here, study this, do that. But I always thought I was going to be a church planner or a missionary. I never thought I was going to be, and I, I would never would have agreed to the proposition, will you be a college or a seminary? I would say no. But what do we know? But what do we know? What year did you complete your PhD at Aberdeen? 85. 85. Okay. And where's Dr. Matson? What year did you complete your PhD at Aberdeen? Okay, a generation later. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm old as dirt, I know. <laughs> okay, so I was wondering if we had, we had any, any overlaps with any of our faculty members here 
and um, the others would be in Dr. Madison's general age as well. Give us a sense as to where you've taught over the years. And of course, we talked through this last night, but your basic, um, just kind of an overview of your academic yeah. life. When I got done at Aberdeen, we didn't have enough money to get back to the United States. And by God's providence, I had an offer to teach at Liberty University. And their president, Pierre Gilliman, was in London, and they flew me down to London. He interviewed me, and he hired me, and they advanced me enough money to get back to the United States. That was convenient. And, and so I taught there for two years, but I was candidating to be a missionary uh, to Europe with Greater Europe Mission during those two years. And after two years, I think because of the exchange rate, I was further away from raising my support than I was when I started. I, a, a teacher at Wheaton, because I did my MA at Wheaton, they asked, would you interview for this job at Wheaton? So I interviewed there and they hired me and I didn't want to go, but my wife said, you should see the writing on the wall, you know? So we went to Wheaton and we were in Wheat for four years and I won't go into details, but from there we took a call to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. That's the point at which I moved my ordination from SBC to PCA. I taught at Covenant for five years until 96. And the third time that Trinity asked me to consider interviewing, again, I kept thinking, I don't know. And again, my wife said, you know, you, you should probably think about this. She didn't want to do it either, but, you know, sometimes she's my conscience. So they, they called me and we went and uh, we were there 14 years and had no intention of being anywhere besides that. But after 13, 14 years, uh, my mother and stepfather really needed somebody to, to come and, and help them into their final years. And uh, that's when we moved back to St. Louis to take care of my, uh, of my mother and stepfather. And I thought we wouldn't be able to do it because I knew, knew what God had called me to do. And I said, well, God, you know, I'll go there if somebody down there will, you know, like hire me. And I thought for sure Covenant won't need anybody like me down there, but they hired me. So I had no excuse not to go back to St. Louis, and that's what we're still doing. Is my mother is is in a nursing home, but my wife's very involved. She's over there today, so uh, that's what we're doing. I'm, I'm pursuing my call there, uh, equipping students for the ministry and other things, and um, caring for my mother. So I'm hearing service in in Christian higher education since kind of the, the mid '80s, mm -hmm. uh, and then service in, the, in theological education since roughly 1990 or so, 91, 92. Uh, covenant, Trinity, Covenant. So that would be a little over 20 years. Give us a sense of the past. Even Liberty was, was it was seminary. Okay, okay. okay. As well as undergrad. So, so give us a sense then of those respective contexts over the years to currently, what you're seeing as trends in theological education, seminary students, what's remained the same, what, what has changed? Uh, again, just would we'll love your reflections over the past several decades of teaching. Well, of course, you know, people change, the, the music that kids grow up with changes, the, the cultural feel changes, the issues change. The really good students are still really good students. I mean, there are a lot of intact families. There are a lot of good Christian schools. There, there are a lot of good pockets where public schools still do a good job of educating people. And so you still get MDiv students that can memorize, they can think, they can read, they can assimilate, they can turn a phrase. So that's, that's the same. But it used to be the norm, and now it's very much the exception. And so the, the starting level intellectually and emotionally is much, much lower. Uh, at least at Covenant, far more students came to Christ in college, 
far fewer students grew up in Christian homes. Also, back in the 80s, when I first started teaching, most college seminary students, they came from intact families. Today, most of them have not come from intact families. More and more students grew up with lesbian parents, or they grew up in really abusive settings, things that, I mean, not that they have to talk to me about it, but they, they need to talk to somebody about it. Of course, we have cohort groups for everybody now because it's just assumed you've got these these things working against you, and you're not going to be fit for ministry unless you air this out and get some depth perception on it and probably some help with it. But it's just shocking how tattered the souls of students are now. And the good news is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So a lot of our students can jump right into what 2 Corinthians 1 talks about. Because you've been comforted, you can comfort others with the comfort you've been comforted with. But it really takes a work of grace and it takes a lot of focus and concentration to make that switch from a young man who was addicted to pornography, maybe even when you came to seminary, who might have been in abusive kinds of situations. You know, you're, you're talking about quantum leaps of shift in orientation to be where you can do care of souls and, and be a man or a woman of integrity in your pastoral care for us. It's asking a lot. And you know, just the shape of what you're doing as a, as a professor, it's become a necessity, much more pastoral. I try not to dumb down the academic, but it used to be you could get further with the academic because you didn't have to work with all the carnage. But now you got to take that carnage into account, too. Give us a sense. It's covenant these days. I, I know you're a professor there. Not that you have all the data in hand, but, but just the broad contours of the size of the institution uh, the basic breakdown of the enrollment you mentioned to me, you know, having a large counseling program. Uh, just give us a sense as to as to the school. Yeah, you know, we are the uh, denominational seminary of the Presbyterian Church in America. There are other Reformed seminaries, especially Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and they're at Orlando, and they're at Greenville, Charlotte, Charlotte, South yeah. Carolina, uh, and maybe some satellites in other places. But our numbers have fallen since 2010. This is very common, you know, like TEDs in Chicago, they, they've really taken some hits. Uh, you're an anomaly, I think. There, there are not that many seminaries that have grown in the last 10 years. And I think a rough figure from ATS is in 2005, 2008, there are, I don't know, 38,000 graduate level theology students in the United States. Today, it's like 25,000. Right. It's this meteoric decline, Catholic and Protestant people wanting to do professional ministry training. And we've been affected by that. So our counseling program is bigger than our MDiv program. We have far fewer young males who even want a pastor. They still feel a call to minister, but they'll, they've decided to go do counseling <laughs> because they really don't want to be in a cultural situation where they have to deal with the antagonism toward male leadership. Hmm. But I, we, we have a higher percentage of women students. And I've known since I first started teaching, like if you're teaching Greek, your best students are always going to be the women. Women just do better in all kinds of ways with, with reading and language skills and applying themselves to the task. And so we have a lot of women actually who are going into PhD programs that have come through our MDiv and uh, they're doing our THM and, and they're moving on and they're doing very good work. So there's no less work for me to do. I can just do a higher quality of work because I have 14 students in a class where in 2010, I had 40. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, give us a sense as of your current academic interest, um, what you're writing on or what you, you hope to find time to write on in the years ahead. Well, I'm indebted to Clint Arnold, who is the editor of the ZechNet series with Zondervan. I've been supposed to write a commentary on Second Peter and Jude for a decade or so. That's after I get the Tyndale commentary on, Gal- on Galatians finished to replace, replace the Alan Coles volume which I'm, that do, is due in August, and I'm about a third done. So I'm, I'm working on Galatians. Uh, I've got a, a more popular level book that's not very long that's due in November on uh, the trustworthiness of Scripture. Uh, I'm sure there are some other smaller things that I'm supposed to write that I'm in denial about. <laughs> uh, but it, it'll, all, it'll all get done. Get, I, and I edit, I edit our seminaries journal which you can appreciate is not an easy task. And I may not have as many research assistants as you do. I, I don't have any. Well, I have one, but he can't help me with this. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work to, to, to get that journal together twice a year. Thank you. We, um, we appreciate what you shared this morning in the conversation day. I would just, in our remaining minutes here, we'd love to reflect a touch on just longevity in ministry. And again, you're, you're, you're still have many years we trust of, of, of ministry ahead of you, but uh, you have been doing this for a number of decades. And from even the conversation last night and, and last year, when you nearly delivered lectures, your awareness of, of maintaining discipline and structuring your life, exercise, writing targets. And I know right now, given the acute care you're giving your mother, especially that's crowded out some of the, of the writing that you would otherwise be doing, but give us a sense as to maintaining long-term productivity, long-term healthy rhythms, physically, spiritually. One of the abiding memories of my religion major at Southwest Baptist College in Bolivar. I finished up my last three years and two years there. And I had an Old Testament professor named Gary Galliotti. And Gary Galliotti would say every lecture at least once you can't sin and get by with it. That's numbers 3223, two, three, by the way. You can't sin and get by with it. Be sure your sins will find you out. So uh, it's really important to remember that you can't sin and get by with it. So I'll start there. If you have a sense of call, it's real, and you got to subordinate everything to that. If you're married, that's part of your call. And I've made major decisions that I didn't want to make because I wanted my marriage to flourish. So you got you to guard your marriage. And of course, can't sin and get by with it. And making sure your marriage flourishes, those two things are not separate from each other. Right. I was talking to somebody, you, you said you were, you were teaching in a church and, uh, you know, stay active in the church. It's very, very important because academia will tempt you to have contempt toward the local church. And uh, if, if, you're, if you stay in the trenches ministering with people, you remember you're a sinner too. And it just kind of keeps you honest if, you, if you're bound to brothers and sisters that have needs. It, it keeps you on, on the need side and the dependence on Christ's side of things rather than, you know, the ivory tower side where you get full yourself and, and you know, your, your soul starts to wither. Physically, lots of ministers are done by the time they're in their late 40s because they kind of follow the American trend of sedentary not watching their diet, not exercising, couch potato kind of existence. And you can, you can justify that by saying, well, I'm so busy in ministry, but you got to steward your body. And one of the things I always ask students, like I ask for three by five cars, a lot of info. And one of the things I ask is about their athletic involvement. And a lot of students come to seminary and they, they've had some athletic involvement. And I, I leverage that to say, whatever it was you were doing, don't stop now. 
If you were a volleyball player, basketball player, soccer player, there was conditioning involved. You figure out a way you can kind of simulate that even in seminary and do not drop your physical conditioning because you're a unit and it, it will hurt your soul. It will hurt your mind. You, you think you're gaining time and you can kind of rob Peter and pay Paul when you're in your 20s and 30s. But you get to a point and you maybe even can't get it back. And it also is good for your, your, your character to make yourself push yourself physically like you can and like you learn to do when you do athletics when you're younger. Keep that up into your 40s, 50s, 60s. And it'll be tortoise and hare. There may be people that can get more written and stuff because they're cannibalizing their health in their 20s and 30s. But they'll be done. They'll get overweight. They'll get this disease. They'll get this chronic that. Uh, they'll fall into sin because they're indulging themselves by not, as Paul said, buffeting their bodies. So make the buffeting of your body part of your stewardship to your wife, to your kids. It's amazing how many men, they can't even really like do things with their kids because they're too overweight. And this is like a syndrome in some, some denominations. You know, when you think of a pastor, you think of somebody that's too overweight to really do anything with their kids. Baptists cannot relate to that. No, no, no. <laughs> But some denominations are that. So that's, uh, it's, it's just, I, I think, a precious gift that God gives us is that we can do things physically. And it's just a big payoff, even though short term, it seems like, well, I don't have time for that. The other thing for me, it's a canary in the cage. If I'm not getting enough exercise to sleep at night, then I need to do something for my schedule because I need to sleep. And when you don't sleep enough, you, your exercise goes. Because you just don't have, and I, I, I got to adjust because I got to get that exercise in so that I don't have all this nervous energy so I can sleep. So it's like, it's like a guard on, on the overall picture. What do you find yourself praying for most fervently these days? Well, one thing we haven't touched on is being overseas so much, but I've got close friends in Africa, one of whom's in Sudan. He's a pastor of five churches. He's a native Sudanese. I just got an email this morning from a student who does refugee ministry in Turkey, which is not a good place to be. But I have, you know, lots of close friends, former students that are in danger all the time. And I'm just aware of that. And then because I teach every Sunday morning, there's a group of about 50, mainly adults, but they've got kids. My wife and I are involved in them. They're part of our lives. I got students poor and dire needs. And I've got my own fears and inadequacies. I wake up at night and I'm, I'm nervous about stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a combination of factors. No, I don't think there's any single thing because, you know, our seminary has needs, our country has needs, my neighbors are lost, family members are lost, people at the church are in need. I've got things coming up I don't have time to do, but there's going to come a time they're going to say, you know, here's the mic and I'm God help me. You know, I mean, we're dependent on God. And so there's lots of reason to pray without ceasing, even though because of the grace of Christ, I can go to sleep and the Lord works for his beloved even in their sleep. That's right. And last question, what do you find yourself most impressing upon your students these days? I mean, this is going to be just very practical, but it comes from I'm, I'm constantly involved with church staffs because of what I do. And I, I love church staffs. And I'm always amazed at how many people 
in church administration, which may be like paid staff or it may be volunteers, we got a lot of really sharp people. Like this guy came up to me on Sunday after my lesson, and I just made an offhand comment. Somebody said, because I'm teaching John, where Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Somebody raised their hand, and uh, she said, uh, where does Jesus talk about Moses? Or what does Moses talk about Jesus? And I, I thought, well, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, 15. And, you know, I typed it in and put it on the screen. And then I said, I think that's in Acts 3. Well, this guy who's a lawyer, who's kind of on the bubble, does he want to be a serious Christian or not? I didn't know, but like he gets his his phone out and he's checking and he came to me after church. He said, that, I, that was just really awesome. Like, you you know the Bible. And then another guy asked me about these lectures because I asked for prayer. And it turns out he's this publishing magnate. He owns all kinds of newspapers in the South of the U- U.S. I mean, I didn't know that. But from working with church people, I realize there are a lot of especially underachieving males because our culture promotes underachieving by males in high school and in college. It's common for guys to brag, I got a bachelor's degree and I never read a book. There's that low level of application. And I see, I see my students and I, I, I read their paper, their paper, and they're sloppy. They're slovenly. You know, they, they, and they know what they should do, like with Turabian, but they're like, bah, 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 bah. and I just, I heard from them because you are going to, you're going to get, <laughs> you're going to get a call and you're going to go candidate and the secretaries are going to be laughing at you behind your back. You know, good spelling and footnoting. And, you know, it's amazing how many things you say in a sermon that are kind of like offhand and somebody will call up and say, where did you see that? So you'd better be able to document. If you saw something online and you're going to use it in a sermon, you better be, have that in a note somewhere. Because the first time you say, I saw this or this happen, and somebody questions you and you don't know where it is, that's the end of your credibility there. So that's, that's what I see. And especially as it regards, because the majority of my classes are still men, even though we have a higher percentage of women. I really want my men to understand if you don't have the respect and the goodwill of the women in your congregation, you're not going anywhere. That's good. Thank you for the conversation today. We look forward to chapel tomorrow with you. And uh, again, our desire is you leave here encouraged, even as you are encouraging us. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.